Welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Ladies and gentlemen, as usual, we our tight little family consists of Eric Whitehead at the control panel and Phil Grant, who is the editor of Almost Daily Grants, the indispensable almost daily pricey of developments in the financial markets. And um, to Phil's left around our family table is Evan Lorenz, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grants. I am Jim Grant. And with us today is, is Kai Stinchcomb. Now, there is a formal biographical sketch of Kai, which I might get around to if I feel like it. But in the meantime, I would like to introduce him as he chooses to introduce himself to his readers, his readers specifically of a fabulous, and I use this word advisedly, a, uh, no, quite fabulous December 22nd essay on the blockchain. So here is Kai in his own words. He's a CEO and co-founder of True Link Financial, a bank investment service for seniors. Uh, parenthetically, that's fine. That's me. Close parents. Now, back to Kai. In his spare time, he enjoys hoping that post-singularity, a detergent delivery drone does not self-execute a smart contract on his life, bit bleaching him from the sky into a hissing pool of unstructured data in exchange for a handful of Bitcoin, close quote. So that's Kai. Kai also, in actually in Evan Lorenz's words, is the founder of TrueLink Financial, um, which uh, caters to uh, retiree. Uh, I'm old, but I'm not retired. Is that, does that make me unqualified, Kai, or qualified? Uh, I, I don't know you well enough yet to answer that yeah, question. Okay. I'll well, tell we'll you at the end. We'll get around to that a little later. And he served as the head of risk and analytics at LendUp and has some other experience in uh, what I guess some people call fintech. I have no idea what that is. He's got a master's in political science from Stanford and a BA from Colorado College. Uh, Kai, what brings you to us, I think, is your pro style, and not to mention the, the substance of the style, which has to do with the blockchain. In a few brief minutes, Kai, can you give us the uh, the kind of the Cliff's Notes version of your case against the blockchain? Yeah, sure. So with a moment when everybody said Bitcoin is the future, right? People are going to use it for, you know, the, the dollar is going the way of the dodo. People are going to use it as the way to pay for things. You know, they're not going to have bank accounts. They're not going to whatever, whatever, whatever. whatever. And then as many people noticed, Bitcoin was a terrible way to uh, store value and pay for things. You know, it's sort of um, designed for a, a handful of transactions a second. The computational power costs are enormous. You know, you, it, it, it's, it's basically an implausible way to pay for things. And so everybody sort of uh, realized that they needed to say something smart about it um, and didn't want to say, oh, this, you know, this thing was just sort of a flash in the pan that everybody spent, you know, billions of dollars on. It just doesn't sound that great at the Bitcoin conference to say, well, uh, why don't we all go home? And so everybody said, well, the real thing is the blockchain. The blockchain is going to change everything. Uh, we were never excited about Bitcoin. It was always blockchain. And then, uh, you know, I, working in fintech, you hear a lot about this stuff. And uh, over and over again, I would hear these sort of uh, use cases for blockchain. And each one of them seemed kind of, um, you know, somewhere between implausible and, you know, totally wishful, right? That it was, it was these contortions to try to apply blockchain uh, the underlying technology of the Bitcoin to um, some sort of use case that really didn't need it. And, um, you know, I, I worked for a minute in voting systems and sort of understand that. I worked for a little, a little bit in identity verification when I was uh, working at a lender. I do investment services and payments now. And so, you know, I had, I had some sense of how each of these things worked. And in each case, it was sort of like, nobody wants this thing that you that you have, right? That, that they would say... You know, yeah. that, uh, there, are, there are all sorts of big hitters on Wall Street who absolutely insist uh, that 
that this is not only the future, but also the present. And there real sums of money are going into blockchain. Just as you say, people will perhaps dismiss the speculative dimensions of Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptocurrencies, but they'll say, but blockchain, aha, that is the thing. And you seem like a, a one-man refutation of this. And I, I'd like to delve a little bit into this, uh, as I say, this truly wonderful essay. And um, at one point you say that there is actually, that there is actually an almost costless instant way to exchange value without a middleman. And what is that thing? What is the legacy thing that is almost costless? Oh, I think I use cash as yeah. an example. Right. And then we say, you say that cash, uh, you quote the friend of yours saying that uh, nobody, uh, that if, if cash didn't exist, it probably would not be allowed to be invented because of the, the security dimensions surrounding payments and the like. And it reminded me a little bit of aspirin. Right? If aspirin were not in existence, probably the FDA would be very wary of it. If cash is, is, is Bitcoin, in the blo is, is blockchain something? Something is an answer to a problem that does not exist. In in, in this case, yeah, in, in, in my view, um, moving money from one place to another. I, I had somebody on the comments thread say, you know, uh, we're going to use, you know, this guy's living in the past. They said about me, um, we're going to use Bitcoin in the future to, you know, cut out the transaction fees of PayPal and Venmo and transfer money instantly and freely using Bitcoin. And you say, wait, you know, PayPal and Venmo don't actually <laughs> charge transaction fees. You know, they, they don't. They just transfer dollars instantly across a non-distributed ledger for, for free. And actually, you can't find anyone that will transfer Bitcoins for free because it's, it's just such a terrible way to move money. It's so expensive. So costly to, to even just process. So free Bitcoin, you know, and it was, it was one of those like, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes, you know? Uh, Kai, I'm not sure if you saw, but last week there was a Bitcoin conference and they stopped accepting Bitcoin because of the high fees and uh, congestion on the network. <laughs> I didn't see that. You know, there's, somebody showed me, um, since I posted it, a, a graph of the number of major retailers that accepted Bitcoin. And, you know, it sort of like went up, 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 maybe seven. And is now back down to three. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, and, and people people will always say like, oh, you know, it's early. We haven't seen it yet, blah, 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 blah. But, um, but you know, I mean, it's like, like you imagine if for three years in a row, smartphone usage had declined between 2004 to 2007 or, you know, or whatever. Well, you know, uh, let me delight the listeners. Uh, I, I, I'm certain I will with a passage from Kai's essay on the blockchain. Okay, he's talking now about uh, Ripple, which is meant to be one of the serious contenders for the leading cryptocurrency and the, um, and the associated uh, blockchain-like technology behind the Bitcoin, the, uh, the currency, the token. So, uh, quote, in terms of interbank payments, many people mention Ripple as a promising way to transfer money between banks. Over the last 30 days, it processed $2 billion uh, worth of interbank and interpersonal transactions, about 40 seconds worth of volume on the SWIFT interbank network. That's a legacy interbank network. After three years of being available to banks to trade 90% of the world's high-volume currencies, this is like the proportion of U.S. GDP comprised of toothpick sales. So Kai asks, why haven't banks preferred this new technology? So Kai, why haven't they? Well, so the, the thing that I would say is, is that setting up a Ripple gateway you know, probably involves a set of corresponding accounts um, because you need somebody who's willing to buy ripples and sell dollars, for example, and then buy dollars and sell ripples. So you've, you've got the same problem. Okay, so take International Bank of Afghanistan. They want to help people um, exchange Afghani money for dollars, right? 
they need to, to create some sort of exchange for um, Afghani currency to ripples. They're, they're the only one that has the correspondent, uh, correspondent account system. So that's the only way to get money out of Afghanistan or into Afghanistan using the SWIFT network, it turns out. Let's say they wanted to move to Ripple. So they need somebody who's going to buy Ripples in return for something and sell Ripples. And so they're setting up kind of the, the same infrastructure that they already have. Now, the only difference is Ripples can be seized by anyone with your password, right? So uh, if you are moving, say, you know, trillions of dollars uh, like the SWIFT network does, you're just not going to use username and password irrevocable security. And, and, you know, this sounds like one of those sort of, um, you know, gotcha things about security. But if you think about it, more leading Bitcoin exchanges have been hacked than have not been, right? So you imagine that, you know, sort of on average, uh, a, a trading platform will go for maybe three years and then get hacked. So you, you imagine like, you know, the, the Ripple network is now being used instead of SWIFT, right? So that's like, you know, I don't know, $50 trillion being processed a year. So one day it gets hacked and say a trillion dollars gets stolen, right? A trillion dollars? I mean, that's like a lot of money, you know? So, so there isn't any bank that's like, well, you know, let's like put like a trillion dollars behind like a one-step password-based system, you know, you just need something that has the properties of a non-distributed editable ledger instead of a distributed ledger. Uh, Akai, that's great. Can you maybe discuss what kind of security you can get when you're not on uh, blockchain and you use a centralized system? And the other main thrust of your essay seemed to be there's so many other services that come up around these payment things that Bitcoin and blockchain are trying to displace that they really can't replicate. And a lot of that is the value add that people really want in these systems. And blockchain just has no answer for it. Could, can you maybe with Ripple talk about the kind of security that Swift offers and the kind of services that it allows people to use that are so valuable that maybe Ripple's not going to be able to offer an alternative. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, maybe I'll talk in the domestic context with AC8, which is, you know, it's, it's like a terrible payment system. It just, it's like if you were, it, only because Bitcoin is so bad could you say that ACH is a working system at all. But, um, or, you know, or you think about Visa also as, as an example, right? In each of these cases, um, there is a technology layer that keeps balances with a centralized repository. Uh, in one case, the uh, automated clearinghouse, the NACHA center. And in the other case Visa, and they, they keep the balances, they generate clearing files, they tell everybody at the end of the day how much money they have. So that's sort of like, that's the easy part. Moving the money is, is like, you know, Visa can do 20,000 transactions a second, and then sends every bank a nightly clearing file of how much money everybody still has. And, you know, it's, it's, that's the easy part, right? The complex part is, um, well, there's lots of complex parts, but the complex part that's really valuable to the end user is that I can call my bank and argue with a charge, right? I say my credit card number got stolen. I'm going to dispute this, this, and this. And then they have a process um, that the merchant has also agreed to to resolve these disputes under the Visa Merchant Acceptance Agreement and the Visa Issuer Agreement, um, and generally the Visa Terms of Service, right? And so then, then banks that are members of this are audited and supervised, uh, among others, by Visa. You can complain to Visa if somebody's breaking the rules, but you know, banks don't like this system, consumers don't like this system, merchants don't like the system, but it basically works, right? You know, if your credit card number gets stolen, and for ACH equivalently, if the, you know, the number on the bottom of your check is your bank account number, right? That's, it's like a, a single factor authentication that you give to everybody. And yet, when you write a check, you don't think, wow, I've given this person the password to my bank account, they can just go ahead and drain my money. 
which is um, which is actually remarkable, a, a testament to the security of this, right? That even though you have the one piece of information that you need in order to empty somebody's account, people generally just sort of don't bother to because it's so traceable and reversible and secure. So, so you know, in summary, there's a set of human processes that everybody has agreed to for disputing transactions and reversing them. And because transactions are disputable and reversible, that means that it doesn't make sense to try to steal. Well, we are with Kai Stinsko, who has um, taken a most original and I think uh, I don't know, most um, arresting view of the, uh, the great blockchain phenomenon. And we'll return to him in just one moment. Well, thank you, eFinancial Careers, for contributing to this episode of the Grants Interest Rate Observer podcast. eFinancial Careers is the world's leading financial services career website. Discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. Why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Register today to let recruiters find you. You can create a profile to let recruiters easily match you to their open roles, save jobs, and create alerts to stay informed of the latest opportunities. Upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply for jobs. Check out the site at efinancialcareers.com. That's efinancialcareers.com. So, Kai, apropos of government and the government's place in the world of finance, one point in this terrific piece you wrote, you talk about, uh, well, maybe government actually adds something to the security and well-being of uh, humans who uh, operate within the government uh, framework. And you write the following. You say, yeah, uh, the government-backed uh, uh, banking system provides FDIC guarantees, reversibility of ACH, identity verification, and so forth. Uh, Bitcoin, by design, has none of those things. And, uh, quote, I saw a remarkable message thread by someone whose Bitcoin account got drained because their email had been hacked and their password was stolen. They were stunned to have no recourse. And this is widespread. In 2014, the then number one Bitcoin trader, Mt. Gox, also lost $400 million of investor money due to security failures. The subsequent number one Bitcoin trader, Bitfinex, also shut down after a loss of customer funds. Imagine the world if more banks had been drained of customer funds than not. Bitcoin is what banking looked like in the Middle Ages. Here's your libertarian paradise. Have a nice day. So one wonders, Kai, are the problems you identify with blockchain, are they fixable Ought they to be fixable? And wouldn't the proponents of blockchain say that this is early days and this technology is as primitive as was the World Wide Web, say, in the 1980s? But you watch, it's coming. You know, that, that's a, a great question. Let, let, me, let me offer two answers to that. One is, uh, there was a lovely message thread uh, on the original Medium post um, that I wrote. Uh, where somebody brought up that same internet thing, early days of the internet, nobody knew what it was going to be good for. And, thought. and actually, one of, the, um, one of the early internet pioneers chimed in on the message thread and was like, you know, I see this argument all the time. It's, it's crap. Um, when we built the internet, we knew exactly what it was for. We wanted a better way to send messages and share files. You know, we didn't know what the implications were going to be. We didn't know the scale it was going to be. But when we built it, day one, it was the best way to send messages and share files. You didn't have to say, oh, we built this internet. Uh, what do you want to use it for? Maybe we can retrofit it to be a better way to share files than Usenet or something. You know, it, was just, it just worked out of the box. Now, obviously, it became better and better for different and different things. But it, it, it was never a technology looking for something to be good at. It was very good at one particular thing that ended up being used for other things also. Um, in terms of the, the retrofitting question, um, I, I, I think, um, you know, basically the story is, you know, for any system, <clears throat> including blockchain, Ethereum blockchain is what's called Turing complete. In other words, you can do anything that a computer can do, you can do on the blockchain. So uh, the short answer is 
Yes, you can. And in particular, for almost any use case, the, the problem with blockchain is that you um, is uh, data reliability issues and human intervention, right? What you want is you actually want to enable humans to argue about what ought to happen, to change the terms of service, to fix the software, to resolve disputes, et cetera, right? So the way you, the way you fix all of these problems with blockchain is to put into place some sort of system to, uh, you know, change the software, argue about what happened, dispute transactions, whatever. And, and because it's a um, complete computing system, of course you can do that. So, for example, if you wanted to build Visa on the blockchain, you could just create, for example, a private blockchain that only Visa was allowed to use, right? And then Visa's entering transactions into a, you know, not distributed, distributed ledger, and they have complete power to uh, go back and change history, they have complete power to um, change the software, whatever, whatever. They can do hard forks, you know, 10 times a day if they choose to, right? And you say, okay, we'll see. We solved this problem. And then the point is you've built something that is as unlike blockchain as possible on top of blockchain, right? You, you sort of um, got it like 90% of the way back to before by sort of working around all of the faults, right? You know, and it's, I mean, it's like if you said like, oh, we can make a horse go as fast as a car. You know, we just need to cut a big hole in the middle of the car and put a place where a horse can stand. And then the horse can just kind of stand in the car and then the humans can kind of like right. pull the steering wheel inside the window. Really, really you know, like, high powered oat too for the horse. Yeah, a really good yeah. quality feed. Um, yeah. My favorite example, I was, I was talking to somebody about the Kodak coin offering, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think you just kind of got to go into the details a little bit in order to sort of like take apart any one particular example. And so when people argue about blockchain, it, the, the thing that I found is that almost always they'll find something that's outside their area of expertise and say, oh, you know, as a computer game programmer, I understand that you can't build computer games on the blockchain. But for, um, you know, voting systems in third world countries, it's very, very good, right? And then you find somebody who is like an expert in voting systems, they're like, of course we can't use blockchain for this. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But, you know, doesn't computer it games, it's great. In? Yeah, exactly, right? You know, people <laughs> hey, can use hey, it. Kai, let me ask works. you this. Yeah. The implication of everything you say is that this is a bubble and it's going to zero. The price of these things are going to zero. And that, that to me is, is, well, at least that's my conclusion from sure. what you say. that's fair. It, and for a brief moment in January, as Evan points out, the founder of Ripple, which is, you know, the one that uh, with the toothpicks or something. Yeah. Anyway, the founder of Ripple was worth more than the founders of Google. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what you do uh, as a speculator, if you have any interest in, in, uh, in buying low and selling high or in selling high and buying low. But have you taken a position on the short side of these currencies? Have you, the, the opportunity would seem to be fabulous. They're down, what, a little bit today. But they are still up enormously from what anyone I know, at least, imagine they could be. Five, what's, the, what's the market cap oh, yeah. of these things, Evan? Half a trillion dollars? More. Yeah. All right. So, um, Kai, what are you doing writing essays when you could getting a, a crypto <laughs> fund and shorting these things all day long? Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, a, that's a great point. You know, you know the, the story of a pyramid scheme is it keeps going up and up and up until it doesn't. Um, and uh, by the way, I, sh I should, should note that uh, in, the, in the essay, I noted two things that they are actually useful for. Um, uh, speculation, you know, basically sort of the pyramid scheme use case where you um, buy it, assuming that you can sell it to somebody later for more because they will want to buy it to sell it to somebody else later for more and so on, right? The sort of, um, you know, which, um, and then second, that. yep, right, exactly. And then, um, and then the second one is uh, transactions, you know, illegal transactions, right? Or um, right. transactions that you want to avoid 
Well, that's a, growth, that's a growth industry, certainly. Yeah, so, and, and then the, the, one that I, the one that I missed out on in the essay that, that I had to acknowledge later, I was, I was wrong about uh, was aesthetic, right, that, that some people find cryptocurrency inherently beautiful. It has value in that sense. And, you know, I can't argue with that. If, you know, if you want to um, uh, make a, uh, you know, collectible uh, electronic kitten, for example, I do find this thing beautiful. You know, it, its beauty is beyond the purview of my utilitarian argument. But uh, the question is, at, at what time will the bottom come out of the tournament? And, uh, you know, if, if there was a way to bet on it sort of five years out, 10 years out, um, you know, uh, well, I wouldn't advise anyone to take any position on these things because I think it's just so wild and volatile. Warren Buffett was interviewed by, I think, CNBC, and he said that he would not short one of these things, but he would buy a five-year put. So that's that's yeah. That's what Warren Buffett says. I was on the subway in New York yesterday, and um, I, I just happened to be overhearing two people talking about um, this. And they, they were talking about how a year ago, if you bought um, $1,000 worth of Ethereum, you'd be a millionaire now. And what's the next one? And they said, well, Ripple is only worth a dollar now. And if it went <laughs> to the same price as Ethereum, then you could put in 1000 and make a uh, you know. And you're like, you know, setting aside denominators, man, like, Stock would be what? What if you had a stock market without denominators? What a great world that would be! You know, I I think that people are making sort of crazy financial bets right now. Um, like you you see all of these articles about how you know buying things that cost less than a dollar because psychologically they seem cheap. Um, you know, and those prices are definitely going to go up because people are looking for things that could do what Ethereum did. You know, where you can buy it for less than a dollar and it'll go to a thousand. I think there's probably going to be a bunch of people that make money shorting it, but. Um, but who knows where their counterparties are going to end up, right? I mean, I guess if you're, you know, if it's like Goldman uh, that's writing derivatives, they're probably good for them. But terrifying to me. The whole thing well, is terrifying to me. Well, terrifying. If I had money, I'd be running the other direction. I don't have any money, though. <laughs> um, uh, Kai, this has to make you popular at, uh, at cocktail parties. You, you do seem to hang around a lot of fintech people. You know, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because um, I think it was something that <clears throat> that a lot of people had sort of, well, yeah, sure, there, there are, there are, um, there are probably people who are quite annoyed at this, um, uh, that me being a dinosaur and probably a very bad person also, clinging to the past, et cetera, limited worldview, narrow way of thinking, et cetera. I think that, that also the, one of the things that I noticed was that people in each industry sort of had this eye roll attitude toward um, blockchain and sort of like assumed that maybe the people that they were talking to who said, oh, no, no, it's very valuable in a different industry might be right, but maybe weren't. And so I think there were a lot of people, you know, for example, in payment processing who said, wait, I've been, you know, I have all these sort of like, uh, you know, engineers in their 20s telling me that payment processing, you know, my, my entire industry, if I go into work at Visa, I got 20,000 coworkers, all of them are going to be unemployed in three years um, because, you know, what we're doing is just completely useless to the global economy. And I'm like, I don't think so. Right. But like, then these guys say, okay, maybe not, but definitely for identity verification, definitely for voting, definitely for trading. You know, NASDAQ is going the way of the dodo. And you're like, oh, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe they're right. And for somebody to come along, I, I think the things that I did that nobody had yet done was to say, actually, in each of these cases, the blockchain proponents are wrong. That, that not that it's, you know, you could very easily write an essay saying, it's a terrible way to build a voting system. It's a terrible way to build a payment system. It's a terrible way to do identity verification. Well, Kai, Kai, actually, it's a terrible you, way to do escrow. You, I'm going to say that you've done that. I'm going to say that this essay, which I began to say when we started, is, is merely terrific. And so is the experience of talking to you. 
So Kai Stinchko, I have I earlier read his uh, his uh, his self-written autobiography. He took a paragraph, and I'm going to close with uh, a characterization, self-characterization of Kai, which will take even less than a paragraph. Uh, indeed, only a few words. Here is Kai in Kai's own words: "Quote." whatever the opposite of a futurist is, close quote. Now, Kai, I, we have to get together again because this, I mean, I'm, you're talking to a, a guy who's 71 years old who desperately wants to be in touch with younger people who are the opposite of futurists. <laughs> so until the next time, thank you for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, the Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. <laughs>